It's our first podcast of 2024, everyone, but it will be far from our last. I wish for all of our listeners to have a happy, healthy, and successful year ahead. We actually recorded this interview last summer, but for various reasons, couldn't release it until now. I'm super excited about releasing this episode with this special guest. Amos Poe is a New York City-based director and screenwriter who's made such films as The Blank Generation, The Foreigner, and Alphabet City. He's certainly one of the progenitors of this whole indie film thing. He's a friend and early mentor to acclaimed filmmaker Jim Jarmusch. He directed Philip Seymour Hoffman in his first feature film appearance. He was neighbors with Basquiat. The New York Times described him as a pioneering indie filmmaker, and I just really appreciated him sharing his story and a lot of anecdotes about his whole film experience. And we talked about a couple of his favorite film scenes from all time. Without further ado, Amos Poe. I'm so honored to have filmmaker Amos Poe on the Film Situation podcast. Thanks for having me, Zeph. So, Amos, I guess tell us a little bit how you first got into film. I think my first um, understanding of some sort of film was when I was um, 13 or 14, actually, 14. And, I mean, I'd seen films since I was a kid, but um, when Kennedy was assassinated, JFK was assassinated in Dallas in 63, I remember um, my parents used to, get like Life Magazine, Time Magazine, Look Magazine. And Look Magazine had this special edition where they broke down the zap rooter footage into frames. So you could see exactly what happened to Kennedy and which bullet hit him when, and there was like a time element. And it was the first time I realized that um, film was, you know, a series of stills. And that there was a time element to it. So that if you move the stills, edited, you know, it moved one still before the other one, it told a different story. Wow. And I remember sitting in front of that magazine and just, just you know, for days on end, just wa- looking at it and kind of thinking about it and kind of going, what, what is that? What is that? I never, you know, and then I, I had a, uh, my father gave me um, an old camera of his, an old Leica, and I started taking photographs. And I was really into that in the 60s, you know, photojournalism, especially with the war, American war in Vietnam and everything, and, you know, civil rights and everything else that was going on. So photojournalism was like big. It was like, I really, I thought, the best thing you could ever do in life was to be a photojournalist, to be somewhere where something was happening that was really cool. Yeah. Whatever. And then um, by 1968, the summer of 68, um, I'd seen a lot of films and I was more sort of politically driven and, you know, I was kind of despairing about what was happening in America uh, at that point. Uh, with Kennedy assassination, Martin Luther King's assassination, uh, you know, it was a lot of assassinations, and and then a war that probably felt pointless 
and then looking back. Yeah, and it was more than it was. It, yeah. was. it was, it was evil. Yeah. I mean, we were attacking, bombing, killing people, you know, for really no reason other than the military-industrial complex. Anyway, so I left um, in the United States in 68 and rented a car in, in, in London and drove around Europe taking a lot of pictures and then ended up uh, visiting my father's family in uh, Czechoslovakia in, six, in August of 68. And I happened to be caught in there the second day, third day I was there, second, third day, as the Russians invaded it, and I took a lot of photographs. On the Slovakian side or the Czech side? The Slovakian side in Bratislava, right across the bridge from Vienna. Nice. You know, across the Danube. So that was my, you know, photojournalist moment, and I was able to sell these photographs to Time Life as I crossed the border, and there was a guy there, and uh, I thought, wow, that's like, that's it. And when I came back to the States and I came back and I was living in Buffalo, New York at that point, um, I couldn't take another still picture. Like, what I'd taken in, during this invasion was so dramatic that any other thing just didn't make sense to me. And I was looking for something, something that would make sense. And then I happened to visit a friend who was an engineering student up in Buffalo. And what he would do is he would get two pieces of electronics or something, you know, and he would take them apart. And he would have two pieces, one to take apart and one to have, in case he couldn't put the thing back together, he had another version of it so he could see how it worked. And what he had on his desk, in his kitchen table actually, was a Super 8 camera. Wow. And I went, what the hell is that? He said, uh, it's a super camera. I go, what does it do? Well, you can make movies with it. You see, you put a thing in here, a magazine, a film, and you send it to Kodak, and it comes back a few days later, and you make a film. I was like, whoa, all right. And Now, had you grown up watching movies and stuff? I had, and, you know, my movie watching was kind of pretty much, I would say, kind of normal suburban you know, not really a, a lot of awareness of film stuff until I was probably like 16, 17, and I started to like, mm, really by 1968, 69, I was really like looking at, like looking at other film, you know, films for quality of some sort or what, what turned me on or what flipped me out. Yeah. What, like, you know, like where... You, the movie's over and you're just sitting there in the seat and you can't get up. So I, I drove down from Buffalo to New York. I brought my still cameras to Olden Camera on 32nd and 6th Avenue there. And they, you know, traded these cameras for a Super 8 Niso Super 8 camera and a projector and then a little editor. And I got two, two boxes of black and white and color cassettes, cartridges for the Super 8. Like, I think there were 48 in each box. So, and I drove back to Buffalo the same day, and I started making films. Uh, most of them were music-related. and was sort of like music videos now, you know, what became music videos in the 80s. Um, and, you know, and I started working at a cinema 
um, um, a place that, that showed art films. It was called the Circle Art Cinema. And after a few months of working there, I ended up becoming the programmer there. So now I was able to like read books about film and, and actually program those films on a movie theater so I could see them while I was reading about them. Total immersion Total of immersion. cinema. Like, so there was no internet, there was no none of that. So, like, that was the way to get into it was, you know, um, these, you know, here in New York, there was the Bleecker Street and the Carnegie and the Thalia and the Film Forum and all these theaters that showed double bills of stuff. And, um, yeah, that's how I got into it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Were you into Hitchcock growing up? Well, Psycho definitely, um, you know, blew my mind. Yeah, I first saw it in the early '60s or mid '60s. I can imagine. I I couldn't, you know, seeing it now. I think it really holds up. I can only imagine seeing it on the big screen at the time it came out. Yeah, and and the other one was the the birds. Yeah, uh, I just recently saw that, by the way, oh, yeah. <laughs> like months ago. I, I I loved it. I yeah, that one that one was. I mean, Psycho was. Scary from a psychological point of view, I think. But the birds were even scarier in a way because it was environmental. Yeah, like it, it could truly happen. Like... Potentially. Like these other animals are going to conspire to, like, you know, mess with us. Yeah. And it kind of made sense. It was like, oh, wow. That's interesting. And then, obviously... You know, uh, later on, I read the Truffaut book. Hitchcock Truffaut. Hitchcock Truffaut. Yeah, it was a great book. Yeah, and that opened opened up a lot of doors. I, I did a, definitely appreciate Hitchcock. I, Strangers on a Train is an amazing film. But um, I was sort of more drawn to, I mean, I was drawn to a lot of areas, really. Uh, you know, European, Japanese films, French films, Italian films. I had like these periods almost. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Because it seems like your work was inspired by French New Wave kind of sensibility. Well, I, I like the, always like the idea of the historicity of film, the, the historical context. And the fact that these guys were film critics and then became filmmakers. You know, they were film watchers and then filmmakers. Um, kind of spoke to me, and you know there was there's a lot of films that are really good, and there's a lot of films that are really bad, but the films that really got to me at that period were films that inspired me. Where I would see the film and I go, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that. The thing was at the time I had no money to make a movie, nor did I have the education to make it, you know, I didn't have the confidence of like going to film school and making movies. I was a filmmaker. I was making, making stuff, shooting stuff, editing it, doing all, you know, edit, cutting the negative, you know, whatever, doing the sound, you know, the whole thing. You were extremely action oriented. Well, I was extremely like, uh, you know, existentially needing to make stuff. But I also realized because I came out of sort of the experimental school of filmmaking let's say that the, our culture is so huge that to make any kind of import in the indent in the culture would require something bigger than one person making a little film 
So my thing was with the Nouvelle Vague in France was that, oh, they made a movement. And there was a few of them, Chabrol and Truffaut and Godard and Agnes Varda and Jacques Demy. And, oh, you know, there, there was a whole group of filmmakers making films in the same city. And there were kind of like two neighborhoods, the right bank, left bank filmmakers. I thought, well, that's what I got to do. It's not just making a movie. I have to invent a whole movement. And the good news was there were so many people living around me in the Lower East Side here that were into film. Like everybody I spoke to was into film. Even the musicians or the painters or the artists or the sculptors. I never had a conversation about painting, sculpture, music. It was all about film. Now I don't know if it was just because I was obsessed with it or... That was the nature of the conversation. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. I think even more so at that time, films were, I mean, f- talked about in an important sort of way. You know, yeah. even now, like I'll I'll take the train and I'll hear people talking on the Metro North that aren't filmmakers, but they're deeply talking about a film. And now it's you know, yeah, they're now they're talking more about succession, series, yeah, succession, streaming. yeah. It's a slightly different environment and slightly different cultural bent at this point because of pandemic and other things. Yeah, <coughs> history. I mean, cinema as we knew it back then didn't re- doesn't really exist anymore. It's more occasionally. Oh, did you see this interesting film from Romania? Or you know, did you see it on? on, you know, BritBox or... Right, right, sure. And, you know, I mean, that's part of what I'm doing with this podcast is to keep the spirit of that sort of alive and, you know, to talk about films that aren't just the main films but also films that are off the beaten path that I think people should see. But going back to kind of what you were just talking about and creating a movement, you you did do that. And that's why I'm excited to have you on the podcast because you were pivotal... Yeah, and we, instrumental into being a part of that New York City wave thinking, of filmmakers. Yeah, my thinking was, was like, because, you know, Unmade Beds, which was my re- sort of remake of Breathless, in a sense, and the beginning of the No Wave, New Wave, whatever, New York thing, I was going to re- reimagine Breathless in the New York setting, but the real key there was that I thought, if I could make a, f- a feature-length film for, like, $3,000, then... There were like 20 other people in the neighborhood who would go, oh, if he could do it, I can do it, right? Because there were so many more, even more talented people than I was uh, around. You know, there was, you know, I mean, in that moment, you had so many interesting people in the same neighborhood, in the same club, in the same night. It was like, it was like totally rich with imagination and, and energy, Right. Yeah. So my feeling was, if I could make this picture, um, w- then other people would like jump into the fray, and that kind of is what ended up happening. Um, and it evolved in a lot of different in a lot of different directions. Yeah, there were filmmakers then, like Jim Jarmusch and mm-hmm. Tom DeCillo and yeah, Eric Mitchell, Sarah Driver, Becky Johnston, Beth and Scott B. Uh, there were like literally dozens and dozens and dozens of Vivian Dick. You know, people were coming out of the woodwork. People were actually coming to New York to make 
films in New York. There was this one Swedish guy who died uh, uh, very young uh, who made a film called Long Island 4. I can't remember his name at the moment, but he came from Sweden to New York. You know, there were people coming from all over, and there were people here already because New York was um, a kind of a central place, and, you know, I was, you know, so immersed in it myself you know, it became like a little cocoon. I think it's important to explain. I mean, many people that will listen to the podcast are familiar with films from the French New Wave and Godard and Truffaut. But for people that don't understand, I always kind of say for those filmmakers in France, what they did for cinema, I feel like it was like the equivalent of what punk rock was for music. Yeah, or equivalent to, like I always thought Godard and Bob Dylan were equivalents. Um, one in film. Because you, well, you were growing up it's when co- punk rock yeah. exploded, so you, had a, you have a different yeah. frame of reference. Yeah, frame of reference was like, oh, when Dylan went electric, Godard went to color. You know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I always thought there was an equivalence between those two. Man, even though Godard was like, I don't know, like a ten years older or something, you know, slightly, they were both they had a certain kind of imagination and maybe bohemian or some, you know, some form of artistic integrity that created long lo- longevity in their careers, at least, and definitely, like you know, in terms of inspiration, people like that, Godard or Dylan. I mean, to me, Dylan was like a filmmaker but he was doing it with music and lyrics like he was telling you a story all the time he was kind of creating mood yeah. um, there was a point there was one uh, uh, funny anecdote that just came to my mind about one day I was I was supposed to I was going down to meet a friend for dinner at this little coffee shop on 2nd Avenue and like 4th Street called Minibon and I was walking down 2nd Avenue and I there was a cinema right on 8th Street or St. Mark's called the St. Mark's Cinema, uh, which was, n- now it's nothing. And I remember like walking in front of it and they were showing a double bill of the two versions of the film, The Killing, The Killers. Stanley Kubrick film? No, no, not, not Stanley. There were two, a, f- a 40s and a 50s version of that same story. It was an Ernest Hemingway story. And... I had not seen either, but I'd read about them when I was reading about film noir. I remember like, oh my God. And I looked at, into the box office and it said, like the next sh- showing was like, there was one at like 7.35 or something and one at like 9.35. And that was the last two sh- screenings. And I went, oh my God. And I looked in my pocket and I had $5. And I wasn't getting paid till late in the next day. So for the next 24 hours, it was $5. So my thinking was, do I go eat with this $5 or do I go see these two films? Because it was exactly $5 to get in. And I was like, what do I do? What do I do? I'm really hungry, but I want to see these films. I finally decided to go and see the films. So I, That's I, awesome. <laughs> I, I hit $5. I went in to see the film. I, you know, I, as soon as I got in the theater, I was like, you know, buyer's remorse, you know, <laughs> it was like, oh shit, no, now what, you know, yeah. I'm starving, and I remember going in, and there was very few people in there, 
and I got this great seat, like in the middle, like, you know, a little bit towards the back, but... Good proximity to the screen. Good proximity to the screen. And there was like maybe a couple of people over here, a couple of people over there, a couple of people in the front, right? Then this couple comes in, and they're both carrying like a large soda and a large popcorn, and they come to the row in front of me, and they sit right in front of me. Oh, that's so annoying. <laughs> right in front, like like... Like, not even, like, a seat over. Yeah. And the popcorn smells so good. It's, like, all buttery. And and they're, like, you know, waiting for the, the film to start. And just as the film is and the trailers are about to start, right, they get into this huge argument. <laughs> I can't remember what it was about, but it was, like, intense. And the intensity just increased, increased, until the, the woman just yelled at the guy, cursed at him, and walked out. And he was like, you know, fuck you too. And, and he <laughs> walked out? He walked out and they left their popcorn and sodas. Amazing. That means it was meant to be. So now they didn't, you know, they weren't coming. They didn't seem to be, because the movie started and they weren't, they didn't seem to be coming back. So I reached over and I got the popcorn and I got the sodas and I had two sodas, two popcorns. I was like, this will keep me until tomorrow afternoon when I get paid. Yeah. And... So that's exactly what I thought. Okay, this is meant to be. Like that's heaven for a cinephile. <laughs> <laughs> I actually kind of want to also talk about the whole punk rock thing. I was really into punk, mm -hmm. but at a later era in the 90s because I'm slightly younger than you. Right. So I got it was a whole different thing when it started. I mean, even when I was into it, going to punk and hardcore shows, it was a really lively thing in uh -huh. New York. There's a lot of people from your generation that are like, no, everything was just like an imitation of that thing. I'm well, not, I don't believe that. Okay, I'm glad you're saying that because, you know, the, you know, for me, when I was into it, it was a very real thing, an awesome thing, and it gave me this sort of DIY spirit of doing things. Like, that's why I'm even a filmmaker. That's why I'm mm -hmm. doing a podcast. Otherwise, right. you know, I, I don't think I would have had that sensibility. And I know you made a, the movie The Blank Generation. Right. There's a documentary that featured. Yeah, it's not exactly a documentary. It's I think of it more as um, experimental film. I mean, for me, you know, I'd been making these movies. You know, I, the way I started was I would listen to like you know on headphones to like a new record, and then a song would come up, and when a movie would start playing in my head to go with the song, and then I would f make that's the movie I would make. And the thing was that Super Eight cartridges were about three minutes. And most songs were around that, so it was really easy to do because a lot of it was editing in the camera. I mean, some of it was editing and splicing with plastic things. But Blind Generation was came out of like we we meaning Ivan Crawl and I. Ivan was a musician who played with Patti Smith and Blondie and Iggy. Uh, we would go to shows and we would shoot stuff became apparent there was I, I worked in film distribution for a little while and there was a place called New Line Cinema which was on University Place in the 13th and there was a store down the street called Cinemabilia and there was a guy working there named Richard Hell and he, from the Voidoids right Voidoids and Voidoids. before that before that with television yeah and he's the one who turned me on to CBGB's and said come down and see my band television and um, so that was my first experience there so we had already been shooting a bunch of sort of more of the bands, be, things before that, but it wasn't really a film. It was just footage. 
of Bowie and Queen and you know New York New York Dolls, you know the glam rock scene, and then Blondie, and then Patti Smith, and it was a half hour movie called Night Lunch, but we couldn't distribute a half hour movie, so we decided to make an hour movie to go with it. We could put a, two movies together and be a feature length film, Night Lunch and Blank Generation. So you saw Bowie and Queen at CBGBs. Not CBGBs, but other venues in New York. Gotcha. But like small venues, yeah, essentially. Because CBGBs was just about to begin. Glam rock was fading and punk was coming up. And it was like Patti Smith and television were the first bands at CBGB. Yeah, the Ramones, right? And then the Ramones came, and then Talking Heads came, and other bands came. And the thing for me as a filmmaker, not as a musician, was that I was using a silent 16 millimeter camera to shoot bands and people would say, what the hell are you doing? It's not gonna be in sync if you put music to it. And I went, that's the whole point, <laughs> not to be in sync. To be in sync is too easy. Like, I believe that at the time that the audio track and the visual track should not always mesh. In fact, there should be tension between them where you could hear like Patti Smith sing, but she wasn't lip it wasn't lip sunk, right? And I believe that if you did that, you would get the audience to see better and hear better because it wasn't in sync. Because we were so used to sync. Like, yeah. What the hell? Sync is like dime a dozen. You know, sync is for sissies, you know. Like, let's just make it, like, not sync, which t was the version of punk in cinema to me. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right? So that was the thinking back then. You know, because we, when you're young, you know, your thinking is, you never question your thinking. You're, you're this is it. This has got to yeah, be it. Yeah. But people would go, How you, how's that going to work? And I go, watch. Watch how that's going to work. Now, Ivan and I did because I worked at New Line Cinema, which did midnight shows like Pink Flamingos and things like that, we put this film out there and started calling up, you know, film places that we knew. They would show Pink Flamingos or El Topo or something like that. And say, hey, we got this new thing, this punk movie. You want to show it? There's, there's like, Cleveland has like a thousand punks running around. Come on, they'll all come and see it. So they because they knew us a little bit, they go, all right, all right, we'll show your film next weekend, send us a print, and da-da-da. So we'd call them on Monday to see how Friday, Saturday, midnights went, and they go, well, 30 people came. Oh, 30 people, oh, okay, what do we get, like five bucks each? Uh, no, 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 30 people came, but 15 of them left and wanted their money back. <laughs> they hated it, the out of sync thing it was just blew their minds and they like fuck this let me get out of here so on one hand especially ivan was so pissed off like oh we, you return money to these people but for me as a filmmaker i thought this is great people hate the movie and and the other people stayed obviously so they must like it we don't have anybody in the middle we people hate us or love it there's nothing in the middle. And that's art right there. Yes, it okay. is. Absolutely. Okay. So, you you know, the 
sort of, in my opinion at that time, which was a little you know, arrogant, I must say, in retrospect, uh, I thought, that's art. Either they hate it, they got to hate it, and some people get it. And you want the audience who gets it. You don't give a shit about the people who don't get it and leave them with their money back. They're out of your picture. You want the pe people, and you're building an audience for maybe a next film who see your work as like outside the box a little, right, or punk, whatever, but now are like, oh, this guy doesn't give a shit. You know, he's just going to make this his movie, and, he, and if it's out of sync, he's got a whole way of dealing with it. And a lot of people did respond and wrote us and said, you know, we love that out of sync shit because the music was hearable, not a part of like some visual, but the visual was also like so out of focus or so black and white or so this or that, you know, scratchy and the lighting was weird and, you know, the, you know, and it was like they were getting the whole punk aesthetic in cinema rather than just the music part. So I felt, or myself, Ivan a little so, but probably he also eventually felt that way, that Blank Generation was successful, you know, whatever, because it was the first time we were actually getting paid from a movie theater for a film that we made. It was like a whole, oh my God, we don't have to have a job to pay our rent. We could, can we do this as a career, or not even career? The word career wasn't even in the picture, but it was like, can we do this and still stay alive? Yeah. I then got a job as a superintendent of a building on 15th Street in order to not pay rent, so I could save the rent money to make a feature film, and that became on main beds. Amazing. I'm Albanian by nationality. There's many Albanian supers in New York oh, City. Yeah, right. <laughs> but this was like a weird building because it was brand new. It was like just renovated. Uh, it was like, you know, 65 apartments. My whole thing, and I was renting them too for the owner. So my thing was when I was renting the apartments, because it, it was it had just been renovated, so there was nobody living in it. And when I first moved, you know, got the job. So he said, you know, I'll, I'll give you another 50 bucks if you rent them. I said, all right. So my thing with renters was, look, I'm the super. My wife is helping me at the time being the super. But you'll never see us. Here's a list of plumbers, electricians, anything you need. We don't do anything. <laughs> we put out the garbage. That's it. We, we clean the hallways. But don't call us if you got a light bulb or sink going or a toilet going, whatever. Here's the numbers. And if you're cool with that, then you can go rent it. But if you're not, if you think you're going to need us, don't rent it. <laughs> in fact, you'll maybe only see us around Christmas time when we want to get the, your cash. Right? <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> and it, it was really funny because, like, everybody who moved, in, almost everybody who moved into the building was, like, into it. Like, oh, okay, you guys are, wh why are you supers, you know? You know, you're not Albanian, right? <laughs> like, well, kind of. You know, like, I'm trying to save money to make a movie. Oh, now when I made on my beds, a lot of the quote unquote sets or apartments were empty apartments in my building. Nice. So I was able to like, you know, get to an empty apartment and actually shoot a scene in there, you know, dress it up and make it into a thing. But, you know, that was that period in New York. Amazing. You could do that kind of thing. So I was born 
on uh, West 14th Street. My parents, oh, wow. at St. Vincent's Hospital, my parents were the superintendents of their building oh, on wow. West 14th Street. Where? Well, between <laughs> by, uh, by 8th Avenue. Yeah, that's where we were. Between that's 7th so, and 8th. And that's 15th. so funny. And this was in 81 when I was born. Yeah. Were so you were there in those years? Uh, 80, by 81, no, by 81 I was gone. We were there from like 74 to 76. Um, r- right after I finished shooting Unmade Beds, in fact, I got fired from my superintendent job and I got fired from my film distribution job and I had no money. I just yeah, spent all the savings yeah. and I just had a brand new baby. Oh, wow. And oh, it, was, it was really dark. It was really hard that year, like 76 to 78, really. And New York was rough back then. It was rougher, that's for sure. It was not as gentrified, and but it was still, it was still less expensive as it, than it is now. Yeah, so people that's true. could come here and be artists. Still, it really, really changed by 1980. I would say 83, 84. By that point, it was like okay, the banks took over New York City, and it was going to be real estate hell. And because before you could, you know, when I first moved to New York in 72, my first apartment was on St. Mark's and 2nd Avenue, and the rent was $72 a month. So That's amazing. So you could work part-time or whatever and still have time to make your art. Um, That doesn't even correlate with inflation. (laughs) No, I mean, that's, or inflation or or how much people make. Yeah. Yeah. no, everything changed. It, 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 um, when New York went bankrupt in that t- in that period, in like 73, 74, 75, you know, up until that point, every year they would have a budget. They would go to the banks, borrow the money to pay the police and the fire department and everything. And then from taxes, they would pay it back. But the taxes, people were moving out of the city by so much and businesses weren't paying taxes. There were empty buildings all over the place. Like, there was no real estate. You know, state yeah, I know, I know people were even burning down their buildings just to collect insurance. Right, because the yeah. insurance was more than the building was worth, or they could make from renting. So the banks decided the first time ever, we're not lending you any money because we don't believe you can pay back. And it was like, what's going to happen to New York City? So New York City appealed to the federal government, which was a famous Gerald Ford line, you know, you know, telling New York to screw off. So now the federal government was going to come and help us. New York couldn't s- subsist, and the banks made a deal. Okay, here's the deal. We'll give you the money, but we own you. Wow. We, you're going to do whatever we tell you to do. And the mayor at that point said, okay. I have to do this. Otherwise, we are going to go bankrupt. And as a city, New York can't go bankrupt. The banks owned it. And then suddenly, that Alphabet City, like literally like a couple months after we finished shooting my film, Alphabet City there, you suddenly saw police on every corner. And suddenly, the whole area was getting cleaned up from drugs. And suddenly, the real estate values were going up. And real estate owned New York. To this day, real estate owns New York. Like, a, a mayor can't stand up to the banks. Yeah. So, 
New York, in essentially, was sold from the population of New York, the people who live in it, to the banks. It's interesting to hear this history and perspective from from you that's lived through it, like that. Yeah, it was a huge, giant shift because downtown for us filmmakers and people that were making stuff there was like a perfect it was like a playground there was such a thriving scene yeah that sort of cultivated punk and yeah, you, you know could, you could come in and if you were a painter or a sculptor you could get a loft and pay you know 300 200 bucks yeah for a giant you know whole floor and you know did you know basquiat yeah yeah so it's like, like everybody knew each other back then yeah because that was the other thing there wasn't an internet or cell phones or any of that stuff smartphones but Somehow, the same three, four hundred people ended up every night at the same place. Yeah, it was the Mud Club or CBGBs or you know um, one university, Mickey's or you know or Max's Kansas City or whatever. People moved in these. How did you know about it? You walked down the street and you ran into somebody and they said, "Hey, tonight, you know, this is happening." So you go, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll go there." Or you would tell somebody else, hey, I just heard this. You go, you go, oh, yeah, I'm going to go. And it, you know, and it was like a, a walking thing. I mean, Jean-Michel, I met him initially uh, at the at uh, CBGB's where he came up to me one day and he just said, uh, you got to change your name. I go, why? He goes, because uh, I have the same name in different letter, different way of spelling it. Mine is Samo and yours is Amos can't have the same letters as me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Was he sort of fucking around? Or yeah, was yeah, he, he, was, he was playing. Yeah. But it was by way of introduction. Yeah. You know, and um, later on when I directed a TV party with Glenn O'Brien, um, Jean-Michel would come around and hang out in the booth with me. And um, then we had a scene in downtown 81 together. And then he became my neighbor, because I lived on Great Jones, in, you know, between Bowery and Lafayette, and he took over Andy Warhol's place on Great Jones, and that was actually when I got closest to him in those last years before he died, because uh, he was my neighbor. Yeah, and he would always Pretty fuck cool. with me. He would always like go, he would see me on the street, and he goes, "Hey, how you doing?" And I go, "Yeah, I don't know, I'm not, I'm broke again." And he goes, "Oh, you you need some money?" I, I go, "Yeah, you got twenty bucks," and he'd open his pocket and he pull out this wad of $100 bills. And he'd say, he'd look through the $100 bills, and he'd go, say, ah, I don't have a 20. Put it back. Oh, <laughs> man. That is <laughs> and, then, and then I'd look at him, and he'd go, oh, wait, hold on. And he'd pull out 100 and he goes, here, take this, and just, you know, pay me back whenever. So then... That's nice, yeah. But then whenever I went to pay him, you know, he'd, he'd ring my bell, and, you know, sometimes my wife would, like, look out the window and go, what do you want, Jean-Michel? Amos owes me twenty bucks. Does he? Is he there? She goes, "Honey, uh, Jean Michel's downstairs." So I buzz him up and come up, and he goes, "Hey, you got you got the twenty bucks I lent you?" I go, "That was a hundred. I don't think so. I think it was twenty. I think he owed me twenty. So I'd always have to pay him twenty for the hundred. <laughs> That's a good deal. <laughs> but it was a way of him telling me I'm successful and you're not. Oh, you think that's what he was yeah. doing? But he also loved. That idea that I, I was building a family, 
and he had a hard time even you know relating in a relationship to anyone yeah and i was out of drugs at that point he was still into drugs and i was like dude you gotta you gotta, gotta stop calm this down sh- yeah stuff it's gonna kill you and literally in 1988 on a friday afternoon right across from his house was a garage that did only like european cars or something and i had this old mercedes that was always messed up and i went to get my car with my son who was like a year and a half at that point it was like august of 88 i think it was the 18th of august i went to get my car it was still on the lift they were about to bring it down and i turned around and i saw jean-michel's door was open and i was like jean-michel never leaves his door open he's so paranoid what the hell Hey, Nick, let's go see what's, what's going on with Sean Michelle. And we walked in. He was dead. Oh, my God. And his girlfriend had just gotten there, Kelly, and uh, just called 911. And, um, you know, he was lying there with blood coming out of his nose. And um, wow, she was crying. And uh, um, I, because my son was so little, I didn't want him to see that, you know, uh, so we walked out, and my car came down, and we got in the car and picked up my wife, and we were driving out to Long Island, and it was like, holy cow, uh, like that was like something I had not anticipated, that um, that he would die. Yeah. You know? But he was, you know, so despairing after, because Warhol had died the year before, and his whole relationship to Warhol had gotten so sour after their shows together. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That he, I think he just gave up. I think he, oh, man. I think he, um, he didn't have the um, sort of positive energy to overcome, you know, the inertia, the gravity of drugs. Yeah. That, this is wild because I had no idea that you even, you know, I was just like, oh, everybody knew each other. I didn't know that you knew him this well oh, when no. I mentioned it. I mean, yeah. I, I knew him, you know, sporadically or like, you know, we were hanging out in the same circles. Yeah. But it wasn't until we were neighbors the last three years, four years, that I really got to know him better because we would see each other on the block. Yeah. Uh, and he really liked my son. When he was little, he, he, he whenever we went to Jean-Michel's, He'd give him a crayon, and my son would just draw some crazy shit, and Jean-Michel would love it. He'd go, oh, my God, that is really good. Your kid's got talent. You know, what do you mean? He's just this little kid with a crayon. Yeah, but, like, look at the way he did that yellow and that blue. He, he realized that if you put them together, they become green, and then he started doing it all, all together, and half of this drawing is green. I was like, oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. He liked kids. That's good. He had a good heart. It yeah, like. yeah. He he liked kids. I think he would have had he survived that period and somehow gotten himself straight. Um, I think he would have had a much more. Um, well, I mean, he would have had a different life, different career. Yeah. Um, sad. Very. This is a story you might appreciate because you were talking about the out of sync thing. In sort of preparation for this podcast, I was watching simultaneously last night your film, The Foreigner, mm-hmm. and then also The <clears throat> Blank Generation. At sometimes I was, and I had like them on two monitors side right. by side <laughs> in, in my office at my <clears throat> house. Right. 
like sometimes I would uh, just have the subtitles on for the foreigner, and then I was just listening to the music, like right. the sound of the blank generation. Then sometimes I would turn the volume down on that, and oh, that's well, and I was like, "There's such a cohesion mashup." Yeah, but but there's a cohesion to your work, you know, that I think is uh, pretty cool. I know you're also friends with Jim Jarmish, right? And yeah. it, were you, uh, how did you guys meet? Just from the downtown New York filmmaking We scene? met, uh, there was a guy, I can't remember his name now, a teacher at NYU who had seen Unmade Beds. Um, and um, he asked me to come to his class and show it to his class. Like it was a, a grad school. At NYU, and I said, sure. I think I, I was paid like an honorarium of like 40 bucks or something. So I went to sh- screen it, and in that class was uh, Jim and Sarah Driver and Spike Lee. And I showed the film, and they all kind of like, oh, looked at it, okay, what, what's, what's that? And I, I hadn't gone to film school, which was always like a like a chip on my shoulder in a way because I felt like I I was a filmmaker but I didn't know how to be a director. Like there was a difference between people who went to film school who had a more of an academic education about film than what I was which was just like picking stuff up on my own like an autodidact. And and then Sarah and Jim uh, who ended up, you know, they have had a long relationship now since the mid-70s. Um, they were, like, really into unmade beds. And then I think Jim said, you know, how much did that film cost? And or and I said, well, I don't know, like three, three grand. I go, how much does NYU cost? And he went, like, three grand a semester. I go, well, you should just leave school and make a film. And... He did. He made a permanent vacation. Um, but we've been friends ever since then. I love Jim. Uh, I'm really fond and appreciative of the depth and length of his filmmaking. Yeah, he's made some an eclectic bunch of films and eclectic, pretty eclectic. E- yeah. e- eclectic and, you know, as you were saying before, that there's a, there's a through line. There is, goes, for sure. That goes through them. And that's the sort of, you know, partly it's Jim's attitude and partly the sort of poetry of the way he he perceives the universe, you know? Yeah. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I like his movie, uh, the number of his films, but I really like Night on Earth. Night on Earth is, yeah. So there's these, they're almost like chapters, you know, so he's making like these short films that kind of, yeah, I mean, that one, I like Down by Law. Down by Law is great as well. Um, I ghost dog. I, I like Dead Man. Um, I like Patterson. Broken yeah. Flowers is, is Broken my favorite. Flowers. Yeah, oh yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I. That one. I don't know. It, it wasn't. It didn't. It didn't grab me as much as I thought it was going to. Um, but yeah, no. There's. Uh, it's kind of funny because I think when you're watching Jim's films, it depends a, a large part on where your head is at. So I think you can appreciate probably all of them if your head was in the right place. Yeah. Um, so that makes sense. Yeah, it's uh, it's um, 
there's a poetry to it and it it's and it's kind of universal it's not like american like his films translate well all around the world oh yeah he's huge in france right he's huge in france and japan and you know italy and a lot of places yeah it's funny how like i've noticed that in general because like i told you i used to go to hardcore shows and things like that and what, what could CBGB's hold? Like 300 people, you know? Yeah. Something like that. At least that was the official capacity. I'm, right. I've definitely been there where they're <laughs> putting yeah, twi- twice as many people. But <laughs> but one time I went to go, I was in Berlin. This is like maybe 15 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. And I saw there were a couple of bands playing. And there was a poster for these bands in like the subway station in Berlin. Uh-huh. And it was like Madball and Sick of It All, these New York hardcore bands. Oh, really? And then I went and I looked it up. I had to go to an internet. This is like before smartphones. So I had right. to go to an internet cafe right. at the time to find out where that venue was. And it turned out it was a place near where I was staying. And and I went over there and there were thousands of people there. And these bands were from New York. Right. But there were thousands of people in Berlin, well, Berlin has always them. been a great venue for New York bands or movies. Um, my films played more of the Berlin Film Festival and became European, so not hits, but you know. Yeah. Um, Did you go out there? And stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Berlin, you know, I, I loved Berlin before the wall came down. Uh, to me, Berlin was, that was the time and for Berlin, once the wall came down, like eighty eight, eighty nine, whatever, eighty nine, I think. Um, yeah, it changed a lot, and it's, it's still a great city, you know. But before the wall came down, it was wild because you had to go through, you had to fly over East Germany, you know, to get there, and you know, or you know, it was an island, like this weird island in the middle of a country, Berlin, and just getting there was just incredible. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and and nobody wanted to live there. So the government was basically, the West German government was paying people to live in Berlin because what are you going to do in Berlin? There's no industry, there's nothing to, you know. So artists went there, and the whole city seemed like a bunch of artists because the government was paying you to live there because it was like, you know, it was it was... You know, the East Berlin was communist and part of East Germany, which you were in the middle of East Germany. So Berlin was in the middle of East Germany. Yeah. So you had to, you, you couldn't even fly a German airline into Berlin. Like, you know, um, what do you call it? Air, um, Lufthansa. Lufthansa. You had to, you had to go, you could, you flew to Munich or Frankfurt or Hamburg. Then you had to take either Pan Am or... British Airways or Air France, the three other places that were part of West Berlin, and because they wouldn't let a Ger- West German airline fly over East Germany, so you had to change planes and then fly to Berlin. It was Berlin was just like a whole other animal before the wall came down. One thing I I also wanted to mention is uh, you've had a number of people that you've directed in your films. Uh, you directed Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, in his first film. Yeah. Um, That's pretty cool. How was it like working with him? Oh, I love Phil. He was I, such I, a great actor. I wanted to work with him again, and unfortunately he passed away. 
Yeah. Um, you know, another drug casualty in a sense. Um, Very sad. Yeah, really, really super sad. Yeah, he, um, I, I, had a fr- I have a friend who was this woman, uh, Davian Littlefield, who is a manager. And one day she called me. She goes, I want to be downtown. I'm going to this little venue to see these, like, actors do this, like, one-act thing. I, I'm, I'm thinking of signing this guy named Phil. Hoffman, you want to come with me? And I was just about to do a film uh, called Triple Bogey on a Par 5 Hole, this little indie film. Um, and it was like 1990, I believe. So I, I went with Davy, and, and what it was was that these actors wrote their own little skits. It was like 15 minutes, and it was all about racism. And Phil did this thing on this little stage. It was like 15, 20 people in the whole place. And he did it with this actress. And the scene was, they were just coming out of a movie, an Eddie Murphy movie. And the, they, they come out of the movie, and, and Phil says to the girl, to this woman, um, how'd you like the movie? And she goes... Oh man, it was great! I love that movie. It's so funny! I, I I love Eddie Murphy. And he goes, "You love Eddie Murphy?" She goes, "Yeah, just, he's he's greatest. I love him." You you mean you like Eddie Murphy? Or he's funny, or you love Eddie Murphy? And she's like, "Well, uh, you know, I I like Eddie Murphy. Um, you know, I, I've seen all his films. I I guess I." Like him, love him, you know. But you love Eddie Murphy. Well, you know, he's he's great, right? He's he's so funny. You love Eddie Murphy? How do you you love Eddie Murphy? What's your problem? Well, you you love him. You mean you love you love this black man, right? Because he's got a big dick, right? And she's like, what? What are you talking about? And he starts ragging on her, and he. It gets so intense that you're sitting in the audience and you were scared for the girl. And you go, oh my God, he just turned this scene. You know, it's like a one that, that Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. In Goodfellas, that's yeah. exactly what I was thinking about. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's going to murder her. Yeah. He's going to kill her. And, and, and the actress, was, who was really also very good, but you could feel her being scared. Yeah. And... And if you could feel intensity and ferociousness of this actor, this young actor. And then when it was done, it was like, whew, oh my God, okay, I gotta get out of here. I gotta go get some air outside. And then it went outside and Davian came out and I said, you better sign that guy. That guy is good. He's amazing. And she goes, yeah, I think I'm gonna sign him. He certainly she, had she, the chops. And she signed him. Yeah. Um, I think that Sidney Lumet movie, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Oh my that god. That was so good. Yeah, and it was like I think Sydney's last movie and Yeah. That was um, Sydney last uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Phil's. I don't know. I think no, he did I think he film. had it. But it was uh, yeah, that that one came out in two thousand six, but that was Lumet's last movie. Yeah. It was he, he was I mean, he's so good in so many movies. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. Hard eight. He had like a cameo in Hard Eight. Yeah. But then um the movie The Master Mm-hmm. was incredible. And there's a scene with 
Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix where they're like down in like the hull of the ship or whatever and they're like mm-hmm. drinking this hooch and it's like there's some homemade alcohol and I was like man this is some of the best acting I've ever seen on camera yeah Phil, Phil was natural he was I mean he studied he went to NYU and he he was well educated in acting but he was also natural just a natural talent in my opinion he was one of the three or four best actors of his generation yeah absolutely no question Joaquin Phoenix is amazing as well yep and and uh Daniel Day-Lewis oh yeah no yeah he's unbelievable did you see Phantom Thread yes yeah I loved, Phantom. I loved it you also directed Debbie Harry she's uh yep been in your early work that's yeah. pretty cool Blank Generation on my beds in the foreigner, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Debbie's, Debbie was, you know, amazing. She was like a superstar. I mean, there were so many amazing people at that time. Um, that's, I think, what made it really happen. It was, you know, Debbie and Chris Stein and, you know, David Byrne, Patti Smith, Richard Howe. I mean, there were <coughs> such an amazing group of people at the same time in the same place you couldn't help but make it like amazing yeah there was a real thing in new york and this ties into something that i feel about movies in general and kind of as i progress as a filmmaker one thing that i notice and that's important to me is i think when when there's films that i really respond to there's sort of a vibe in that film and your work has it. Your work has a vibe to it, you know? And it's it's almost like it could even be shown as artwork. Like if somebody was having a party, your work could be shown, you know, like it could just be there and, you know, it adds to the vibe of the party or something. I don't know. Yeah, that that's, I, there was a film I made in 2006, 2005, 2006, seven called Empire 2, which was a kind of a reimagining of Andy Warhol's Empire. Yeah, uh, I've seen some clips from it. Yeah, yeah, like a digital version of Empire. And that one is literally like wallpaper. You could, like any music goes with it. Yeah. Um, but that was a, a digital experiment, dual film. When you look back at your body of work, is there a particular film that you're the most proud of? <sighs> um, I know it's probably tough to say, but... Yeah, it's hard to say. I think the foreigner, in a way, may be the most coherent and strange, you know, film that I've made. Um, I love the scene where he's sitting in the hotel room, and then there's that little documentary about punk rock right. playing that like news yeah, section, he, and you're just watching it and re- watching this guy watch that in real time. It was a bold choice. Well, it was and, it was an ac- an accident. I loved it personally. We were in the Chelsea Hotel and we were going to do this w- one little scene, and and then somebody said, "Hey, you know they're doing this thing on, I don't know what it was, Dateline or sixty Minutes or whatever it was. It was like about punk in London." I go, "Hey, turn on the TV and let's look at it." And then the RDP Shireen said, "Let's film it." I go, "Yeah, let's film it." And so Eric was like watching that. Yeah, that's that film has a lot of. That was, um, in a lot of ways, the most um, positive 
even though there was a lot of negative stuff going on around it, it it really changed things. Um, more so in retrospect than when I was there at the time. But um, um, it was a really difficult time in my life, and um, it was a really great collaboration with Eric um, and everybody else who was on the, on the film. And it was just a sprint to make that film. It was just invention after invention after invention. And the final invention of that film was that at the very end of making that film, I, I was like literally broke again and had no money for a sound mix. And I was like sitting there going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I, I, I got to mix the sound, but I got no money for a sound mix. And even like the, you know, somebody said, you know, I'll do it for $400. You know, and I was like, yeah, but I, yeah. You don't even have the 400. Yeah. And then what happened was I, you know, somehow miraculously happened to watch it again without the sound mix, where it was like literally one track just butt spliced. It wasn't even separated into different tracks. Yeah. It was just one track. So if there was music, there was no dialogue. Oh, so that's why the music cuts off. Actually, I kind of liked it. I thought that was an artistic choice. Well, it became one. I, I liked it, you but, know. But it I was like, oh, that's pretty cool, actually. It, it just The music just will cut off from a scene and just... But it came from, like, going, okay, I don't have the money for a mix. Then I listened to it, you know, and watched it and listened to it. And I went, does a film always need a mix? Does sound always have to, like, fade in and fade out and be perfectly... Can it just be boom, 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 boom? And I went, what if you did a whole feature with boom, like with butt spliced, you know? Yeah. Like the volumes are different and everything is like different tones, room tones and whatever. What if you had no mix at all? And I, and I t asked a few people and they were like, I don't think that will work. And I go, you don't? Why? Well... It's not how your ears work. Your ears need to be... I go, well, is every visual a fade in and a fade out? Or, you know, are you always, like, dissolving in between shots? No, you're hard cutting. What if you do that with sound, though? Well, uh, you know, and then the more I thought about it, the more I said, you know what? Let's make it... For, the film is done... We're going to screen it next week. And we screened it the following week, and it was like a, like everybody in town came to see it. And it was great. But it was because my belief was partly that they never heard a movie like this before. Yeah. It was you, never, you never heard a movie where every cut is butt spliced without any modulation or tonal shit, you know. It was rough, rough, rough all the way through. And I think that was part of its um, strangeness or uniqueness was that you, there was no other... Like, I remember, like, like becoming very conscious afterwards, like, especially when we screened it in Deauville and in Berlin and other film festivals, how every film had a, you know, a, you know, a sound mix. And I would ask people, like, because when we showed it in Deauville... Uh, 
or you know, like it was the year that David Lynch showed Eraserhead. So I said to Lynch, "Did you uh, do you have a sound mix on your film?" He goes, "Oh yeah, what do you mean? Of course, I have like I have like eight tracks on some of these." Yeah, Eraserhead actually has a pretty elaborate sound design. Yeah, yeah. I you know talked to Robert Altman. Of course, you you gotta have a sound mix. Talk to Scorsese. Hey, what are you talking about? You you don't mix your sound. I go. I'm just wondering, and it's like, oh wow, we're onto something here. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's doing this shit. Yeah, let's do it, and we did. Speaking of Scorsese, because you made a lot of your films after Taxi Driver, was Taxi Driver? Oh yeah, that, I mean that must have been amazing seeing that in the theater. Taxi Driver, I I actually I saw them film a couple of scenes because I was working around Columbus Circle and that. Thing where he goes to, you know, he's got he shaved his mohawk, you know, and he comes in and it was like De Niro, like, oh wow, yeah, no, I, I loved it. Taxi Driver was like, I thought Schrader script the whole thing, but for Taxi Driver, I actually, um, you know, like when I saw it, I was like blown away by the music. Oh yeah, the Bernard Herrmann yeah. score yeah. is incredible. Is incredible. That was his last score, I think. Yes, it was the last yeah. score. He died like a day after he delivered it. Yeah, wow. And that's why Scorsese dedicates the first credit at the end is for right. Bernard Herrmann. Right, that's because right. Because if you really look at it without the music, the film is very choppy. And Scorsese talks about it. He said that when he had made the film, he had just become friends with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, and he wanted the Rolling Stones to do the soundtrack. And he had screened it for uh, Brian De Palma. A rough cut, you know, like he had cut the picture, but there was no, yeah. you know, music yet. <clears throat> and De Palma said, "Marty, this film doesn't work. It's just choppy and fucked up. I mean, it's <laughs> it's great scenes, but like nothing holds it together. It's just falling apart." And he says, yeah, 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 but I got it. I got, I got, I got the Rolling Stones to make them to make, make the soundtrack. It's going to be really rock and roll. And Bernard Holman looked at him and said, "Are you out of your mind, Marty? Rolling Stones, get the fuck out of here! They're like a rock and roll. How could they do music for a movie? You're like, what are you talking about? You might like the band, but the, no, get a real composer. Get somebody real, like, you know, I don't know, like Bernard Herman." And Marty said, "Wait, is he still alive?" He goes, yeah, he's still alive. He did music for my film. You know, call him up. He's in London. Here's his number. Because says he thinks about it and he, for a minute, and he's like, yeah, he, maybe Brian is right. You know, like, I should get a real composer, right? And he talks to the producers, and they go, yeah, get a real, if you can get Bernard Herrmann, what the fuck? Get, get Bernard Herrmann, you know, Rolling Stones. Give me a break. So he called him, and he said, yeah, I'm available. You know, nobody's calling me. I'm old. And he says, well, I'll send you. This. So he sends him the thing. Herman looks at the film. Scorsese calls him and goes, well, what do you think? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got some good ideas. I think I, I, think I know. Uh, yeah. So he calls him the next week. I says, How's it going? Oh, it's going really great. I... I think I've got the main theme, you know, I'm getting the London Philharmonic to, you know, together, you know, like, it's, you know, the score, so Scorsese says, how would you describe it, if you could describe it in words, and he goes, oh, it's very romantic, 
Scorsese flips out. It's romantic. It's a violent. Oh, no, no, no. It's a love story. Scorsese, oh, shit. You know, I got the wrong guy. Like, it's a love story. What do you, what do you mean? And he goes, call, calls him back. And co- a couple of days later, he goes, how's it going? He goes, it's almost done. I'll send it to you in a couple of days. What do you mean by romantic? He goes, it's a love story. I told you. He says, love story? Like, what love story? It's... He says, it's a love story between you and New York City. Yes. And then he threw Scorsese off track when he said that. And then the score was done. It was sent to New York. Thelma Schoonmacher got it. And Scorsese, how's it working? And she, she goes, holy shit. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we needed. It's we one of f- the best pairings of sound and picture of all time. I think so, too. And... And then she put it together, and the next morning they had a screening, and Scorsese says, hey, you went into the screening being very, very nervous, very anxious, that he had no idea how romantic, you know, like, what is Bernard Herman talking about? Like, he expected, like, something real, 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 you know? And then Bernard Herman, right, that great, great opening. Yeah, thing. it's incredible. And I, I personally don't like things that are too on the nose. Like, I, I, you know, like, I mean, Law and Order, if you watch Law and Order, it's like, here's a suspenseful scene. Yeah. Here's suspenseful music. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Like, and anything Law and Order, don't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the fact that, and Scorsese says he sat there and he saw the film completely differently from because he had been so involved in the film, he thought he knew the movie. Yeah. He said, once Bernard Herrmann's score went on, it was like a whole different experience. And he, he was speechless for like 15 minutes afterwards. And then finally, Thelma looked at him and goes, Marty, can you say something? Can you open your mouth? And he went, oh my God, this is amazing. And then he told Brian De Palma, he called Brian De Palma, he said, thanks, you know, the, the guy, he changed the whole movie. I mean, it's like a whole, Yeah. it's like his input into this movie made the movie you're right it holds it all together now whereas before it was like this disparate scenes right and the said to him that's great you know you should call him and thank him and he called him and he was dead oh my god wow he had just died but and what a legacy he left <laughs> and also the, your story first of all incredible story and that's also a testament to the true collaborative nature yeah. of the medium of film which is something that personally drew me into yeah. this field. So, like, like you know, most directors, you know, filmmakers, they have a sense of music, they have a sense of tone and all that stuff. But if you have a really great composer like uh, Bernard Herrmann, don't give him directions. Yeah. Do not direct. It's kind of trying to direct Phil Hoffman or Daniel Day-Lewis or, you know, like, like just chill. Absolutely, yeah. You no, know, like it's let them... Let them do their magic. Let them do their thing. And, you know, if you need to tweak it, you tweak it later. But, like, if you got somebody like, you know, like that, you know, you're working with someone who's got real chops in their field, just let them just say, here, I don't know. I mean, I have ideas, but my ideas, don't worry about Because you can't describe sound. 
with words. You can't say, well, I think I want a romantic, or I think I want it violent, or I think you should have violins, or I think you should have harmonica. Like, you know, because I always have those ideas, but it was like, if you have a composer, just l let them run with it. Yeah. I think it was Stanley Kubrick that said, cinema is closer to music than it is to any other medium. Yeah, because if you, if you have to explain it, it's like you have to feel it. Yes, exactly. Uh, That's why I don't understand when people say, oh, I read about that movie. I don't really need to watch it. I'm like, well, if you read about a fucking good meal, I'm like, does that mean you don't need to eat it? Like, you know, like right. it's, it's, so, it's such a strange sort of thing. Yeah, it's very much like that. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like cooking. Like you need the right ingredients or you, you need fresh vegetables or you need something. But you could only know it by experiencing the meal. <laughs> exactly. you, could, you know, you could read about it. To maybe entice you to want to eat that or not, you can only fully know it by, you know, experiencing it. Yeah. And I feel like the same thing is true for a film. I think this will be a good time to segue into our second portion of the podcast, which is <laughs> I ask each guest for two of their favorite movie scenes from any films of all time. It doesn't have to be the most absolute favorite, I always say, but, you know, just two scenes that you... Well, like or appreciate. I thought about it. I mean, it's he, there's so many good examples of it, but for me, one of them is the opening of Once Upon a Time in the West. Sergio, oh, Leone, I love it. Yeah, that with uh, Peter Fonda and Charles Bronson. Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda. That's what I meant to say. Henry yeah. Fonda. Yeah. Peter Fonda's dad. Yeah. Um, James Fonda's dad. Uh, James Fonda's dad. Yeah. Yeah. That opening in the train station when they're waiting for the guy to come the longest stretching of time it's so beautifully done just these three guys gonna kill this guy that's that's also a good example of the score there's sergio uh sergio leone worked with ennio morricone morricone and just the sounds the ambient sounds of kind of what's going on tying into the score of the film is uh, incredible the fly and it's so good. That's such a good opening gun. sequence. Yeah, that sequence to me is like an, a perfect, like how to open an epic film, like stretch time, like like you know, the whole idea of waiting for a train. Everybody's waited for a train, so everybody has an idea of what that is. But who are these guys, and why are they waiting? And what are they going to do when the train arrives? And the whole ambiance of this train station, the production design, the sound design, the you know the whole thing, and you're just kind of like, I'm just going to watch that ten times. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's incredible. And talk about a vibe like that movie is. Yeah, it's it sets it all thing up, and then the first lines are like you know. Um, uh, you know, so and so sent us to, you know, and he's, he, you know, uh, he says uh, to them, um, "There's three horses there," and he, he says, oh, "It looks like you're one horse shy." And they said, "You know, no, we're not." You know, and then they they have the gunfight, and he kills all three. Yeah. 
uh, you kind of holy shit, this this is a good badass. This guy's so bad. From what I read about, people weren't used to seeing Henry Fonda as a villain. Yes, Henry Fonda was such a you know sort of Tom Hanks. It's like seeing Tom Hanks as a villain. Um, yeah, it was great casting, obviously, uh, and Claudia Cardinal later on, and everything. You know, it's it's a stupendous film. The other one that is also kind of opening is the op- the first like I don't know twenty minutes or so of uh, uh, there will be blood. Um, that there's no dialogue. Like the guy goes down the well and he's like, you know, falls and, you know, the whole um, Daniel Day-Lewis just, there's there's no, you know, the lack of dialogue in the, in that first 20 minutes, like not a single line of dialogue is so beautiful. Um, it's incredibly cinematic. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you actually have to be conscious when you're writing a script, like, okay, there's going to be a, a part in this film that is, I'm going to tell it only through pictures and there's not going to be any dog. Now, it's easier to do if there's one character like Daniel Day-Lewis. It's harder to do if there's two because two people are going to talk. Yeah. But what if they don't? Even harder if there's three. Much harder to do a scene with three people and no dialogue. Like, why are they not talking to each other, right? And, like, if you, as a screenwriter, if you set that up as a kind of a, a challenge, or as Lars von Trier would say, as an obstruction, you can really get to creating a sequence or a scene that really kind of makes your movie come alive. I think that's so important to, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is just those kind of obstructions and how they actually foster creativity. Right. So one is a writer, like, can you write a scene or sequence of scenes, like a block? How long can you go without dialogue? And how much tension does that build? Because the audience is so ready for, like, when are they going to talk? It's the same thing, like, if you introduce a character and the camera's behind them, you don't see their face for the first five minutes. Yes. It's like creates a tension because you don't want to give them what they want. You want them to want it before you give it to them. You want to create the need to see. I had that in my opening scene of my feature film, The Trouble, that introduces the main characters because they're in a bar and you just see the backs of them. And my producer, George, who's a great guy, but he was like, why do we just see the backs of them for so long. I'm like, I want it to feel like somebody's there eavesdropping on these guys' conversations for a while before we then cut it's into like close-up. How long can you go before you see their faces? Yeah. Because you're creating... What he's, what the producer is actually saying to you is, I want to see their faces. And you go... And, and you're, you're, you're frustrating me because I'm not, you're not showing me their faces. And you kind of go, oh, I've accomplished the task of a director. <laughs> yes. I've, I've created the need to see prior to seeing same thing with like dialogue i've created a need to hear these this person talk or say something now later on in in there will be blood he has long monologues 
Yeah. He has lots of conversations that are great. But like the fact that you are seeing his physicality and for an actor like Daniel Day Lewis, who's so physical anyway, he's he's so wonderfully physical. Like he's great, like in you know Phantom Thread when he's talking, obviously, or what was the, the film with Scorsese um, and Michelle Pfeiffer? That one was great. The Age of Innocence. Or? Yeah, Age of Innocence. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was he, great. He's you know he's he's so voluble in terms of speaking, but he's also such a physical actor. You want to be able to like mine that part of his you know aura. I know it's a frequently referenced scene. And there will be blood, but uh, the scene where he's in the church and they're in Paul Dano's character is like, so you've abandoned your child. I've abandoned my child. And at first he's just sort of going with it, but you know, so like, you've abandoned your boy that he just loses. He's like, I've abandoned my boy. <laughs> I've abandoned my child. He's just, he's just tearing it up. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, 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 he works. He works the script really well. I mean, he's the kind of actor, and 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 Phil was like that too. I think he he could uh, break down um, a scene. Um, I remember when he, Phil did Doubt with Meryl Streep, and you know they were kind of antagonistic characters, and she would mess him up all the time during shooting, and he he was so scared of her. Uh, you know, he Phil was not intimidated by any actors really as far as I could tell, or people, you know, if I had a conversation with Phil about, hey, what was it like working with so-and-so? He was never really intimidated, like, oh, he's guy, this guy's great. But but with Meryl Streep, he was, he was like, I'm ready to kill her. Because <laughs> he would do, like, a scene with her, and he would have nailed it. And what's his name, the guy who wrote it, uh, the playwright, uh, John, what's his name? Uh, Doubt. Um, anyway, he uh, he would say, "Hey, Phil, that was great." And then they would all look at Meryl, and sh- she would look at Phil like with this cross-eyed look, and she would say, "I think you'll want to do another." Wow. And so she was casting doubt on his on his acting, and the film was called Doubt. And yeah. Phil never had doubt about his acting. Anyway, he had maybe doubt about his life, but not about his acting because he knew when he nailed it. The writer and director's name, John Patrick Shanley. Shanley, yeah. John Patrick Shanley. It was, it was great. Um, it was based off a true story, if I'm not mistaken. It might, yeah. I don't remember. But I remember when he was filming it in New York and he was like, oh, I should have taken that film out in Wyoming. Oh, man. <laughs> like, so you guys kept in touch. You guys were... We would occasionally, because I lived uh, around the corner for, for a while from, from his office. So we would run into each other at this coffee shop, like that was like equidistant from our place. Yeah. Or, you know, once in a while we'd just run each other somewhere in a screening or somewhere else. But um, I, didn't, I didn't keep in touch with him as much as I should have wanted to, really. Yeah. Because um, he was also so busy. Um, you know, his career just. Ascended, yeah. You know, uh, everybody wanted to work with him. You know, yeah. and he was getting, you know, he'd get like 10 scripts a week. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> you know, um, and he, you know, he, he had choices. He could 
do another Paul Thomas Anderson, or you could do, you know, Sidney Lumet, or you could do, you know, every, there was people who got what he was bringing to the table. Everybody wanted to work with him. Why not? Why wouldn't you want to work yeah, with him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought what he did with Capote was incredible. He just owned it. You look at that movie and you go, I don't think anybody else could do that. Yeah. Nobody else could play Capote. Yeah, he, he had a range that was really, really, really strong. Absolutely. So, Amos, before we conclude the podcast, is there any other thoughts that you wanted to share? or Not really. I mean, I think we've covered a wide range. I think <laughs> so, too. I'm so gra- I'm so grateful for you being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for reminding me. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation podcast hosted by Zef Kota. Today's guest was Amos Poe, produced by Theodora Harrington. Original music by Yuri Ryback. <laughs>